So glad you're here today. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you didn't bring a Bible, I think it'll come up on the screen behind me here. Matthew chapter 5. We started this last weekend, last Sunday. Uh, I've never taught this before in all these years. I don't know why. I just never have. But it's come to life for me in these uh, this season, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down and opened his mouth and spoke, and out came the most amazing sermon. For the next three chapters in my Bible, it's all read. Uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, this is an amazing sermon. We looked at verses uh, 3 to 7 last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. To be in constant spiritual need is a good thing. He said there's a blessedness in it. Uh, to be mourning, and you can mourn lots of things, not just loss of life. You can mourn loss of a marriage and loss of a friendship, loss of a job, lots of things you can mourn. And that becomes a touch point for Jesus to reach into your now and comfort you if you'll receive it, if you'll let him. But if you're just bitter and just blaming people and looking for someone to blame for what happened to you, you're going to miss out on his comfort. But there's a power, there's a blessedness in being poor in spirit, in mourning. And this, this blessedness is profound. It's a, it's a big word. Uh, some translation says, happy are you. That doesn't do it for me. One translation says, spiritually uh, advantageous. I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's a spiritually advantageous thing to be mourning because, <clears throat> not because you're hurting, but because that's an opportunity for Jesus to reach into your life. Blessed are those who are meek, where you become utterly dependent upon him. That's a good thing. Those who become utterly meek have their way with God, and they get things, and they accomplish things, they do things. You're sitting in this building, which was really achieved by, by a group of people being utterly dependent upon the Lord, and, and we've inherited this little patch of something for us to be able to use for these next few years. And that's, that's fulfillment of this, verse 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're hungry and thirsty for something. We're all hungry and thirsty for something. But to be hungry for righteousness, he says, you shall be filled. Hunger, hunger and thirst are a sign of life, whether it's physical or spiritual. You're spiritually hungry, and you have to, you'll fill that with something. But it can be filled with righteousness, where you're right with God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You find out how good that is. His mercy's everything. <laughs> then he says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And all the way through the Bible, up until this moment, men have been forbidden to see God. Right from Genesis, 
that no one's been allowed to see his face and live. Uh, it's been forbidden. It's one of those, the one thing that's off limits. No one's been able to see his face. The reason for that, I suspect, is, is one glimpse of his face. And you would never be the same. You would surrender so deeply. There would be no faith involved anymore. There'd be no struggle involved. Because once you've seen his face, you would just live completely for him. And I think a lot of people want God to show up or an angel to show up in their life because they don't want the discipline or the walk of faith that it takes to really walk this thing out. And he's not going to give you, he's not going to give you that advantage. If you saw his face for one second, it'd be all over. You would live for him completely, wholly. So what he does is he holds that as a promise. And Jesus is setting out as a promise for those who are going through this life here. And he says, now the, the pure in heart shall see God. Notice he doesn't say Christians shall see God. Notice he doesn't say church members shall see God. It doesn't work that way. There's a battle that you and I are in to try to defile us, to try to separate us from God. There's a battle in our lives to become marred again, to be ruined again. And he sets us out as an incentive to live a, a separated life, a pure life, with no mixture, with no uncleanness. It's possible, it's possible to be a Christian and in going into darkness and, and becoming smeared with, with the kinds of things that separate us from God. It happens to all of us. So Jesus sets this out as an incentive. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now that may not mean very much to you right here, but I'll tell you, There'll be many people in heaven who will want to see his face who won't be able to go there. They won't be able to see his face. They'll be in heaven, just like the thief on the cross. He got his big toe across the line. Jesus said, this day you'll be in paradise with me. He turned a little bit toward Jesus. Jesus turned all the way toward him. He's in paradise. He, his big toe crossed the line. But there's a, there's a reward for those who live a separated life, a, a life of purity, where they actually get to see the face of God. Let me see if I can take a couple minutes and describe what I think that looks like. The Apostle John was able to go to heaven, be, it, be there, see it, come back and write about it. And one of the things he described, and he, uh, Jesus had written some letters to the churches. One of the things that John uh, was able to get a revelation of is that there's a thing called intimacy that begins here and carries over into heaven, intimacy with the Father. And he said, as a reward for overcoming, because there's a pull in this world, there's a pull, a magnetic pull to pull us down into, into, into smutty living and to, to defile us, to separate us from God. And he says, those who overcome that pull those who overcome shall be given a name that no one else knows except God. That's called intimacy, where you have something that nobody else has. You have access. And God has a name that nobody knows, and he tells you that. And he actually writes that name on you. Well, if you can imagine being somewhere in heaven, somewhere in this massive city that Jesus is building, 
And all of a sudden, your name is called. You're there working because there's actual jobs in heaven, not jobs that we have to do, jobs we get to do, jobs we love to do, jobs we're made to do, gifts we get to use in heaven. And somewhere, you're working away in heaven, and your name is called, and no one else gets it. No one else understands it. You stop doing what you're doing, and you, you walk down one street and down another street, cross over a bridge, cross through a park, through... It's a city. It's an actual city with trees and a, and a river. Then you come into this place, a room so big you can't see the walls, so tall you can't see the ceiling. And in the room is a single chair with God himself sitting in it. And he invites you by name to come and sit with him. John wrote this down, and it's in the book of Revelation. The, part of the, the privilege of overcoming the pull of this world is you get to sit in the throne with God. Now, I don't know what your picture of God is, but I don't see him as an angry old man, uh, long fingernails and long scraggly beard and mean and stingy and harsh. I don't see him that way. I, I see him as forever young. I see, him, I see him the way the Bible, Paul said that God is love. He doesn't have love. He is love. So the one who calls you, you have this sense of being absolutely, completely, totally beloved. And he invites you by name to come and sit with him, to be with him, to talk with him. And, he, and you have the privilege of looking into his eyes and seeing his smile and seeing his expression one thing I don't like about prayer, I told the Lord, I don't like prayer. I, I really don't like praying, in part because it's all by faith. You can't see anything. There's a lot that's lost. I don't think God likes prayer either because there's so much that's missing in terms of communication by not being able to see the person's face. So here, there's this open communication where you can say what you want, and he says what he wants, and this goes on and on and on forever, and nothing, nothing can ever interrupt it. Nothing will ever stop it. It's the greatest reward known to man, and to be in heaven is wonderful, but to not be able to see his face would be such a grief, such a loss. And other people come out so transformed by the love of God. They're affected by that intimacy that lasts forever. There are people who are looking for intimacy here, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. You're hungry. You're hungry for intimacy, looking for it in a person, looking, looking for it in the first person who smiles at you. Well, that smile, that little, or a rose or some, some trinket is nothing compared to you experiencing intimacy with God, the Father. And you get to have this forever and ever and ever. And he wants this. He wants this. He sets this out as a reward for you and I. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. There's a lot of conflict, even among us, there's a lot of conflict that happens. And to be a peacemaker, and this is a unique word, it's only used here in this sermon, Jesus coined it. 
is someone who's always trying to bring things together, always trying to pacify, always trying to, to make things more peaceful. You know, uh, it's a basic disposition of moms oftentimes to try to be the peacemaker, to say, okay, let's, let's all get along. And in this world, that's really hard to achieve. But if that's your basic disposition, if that's your heart, where you're always trying to bring people together and get people back together, and it's kind of like uh, the armor of God. One piece of the armor of God was having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which means that you're always trying to bring about reconciliation. It's hard to do. But... God is always doing that. God is the greatest peacemaker. He's always trying to bring about reconciliation. He wants you to live a life of peace. And there's a lot of conflict. And he's this way. And so if that's our business, if that's what we're doing, we're always making the extra phone call. We're always, rather than just writing people off and saying, well, what difference does it make? Just, you know, uh, too bad for them. But to take the effort and make the effort to go the extra distance, he says, you're actually becoming a son of God. You're living and walking and talking and looking like your father in heaven. Verse 10. Spiritually advantageous are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for their own dumb move, not for their own arrogance, not for their own weirdness, not for the crazy things that they say and do or the antisocial things that they say and do, but for, for righteousness' sake, for his name's sake. He said there's, a, there's a, a spiritual advantage in persecution. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> not likely. I first caught this verse one time. Uh, Persecution hit in our churches in India. They, they tried to burn my house there. They tried to burn our church. They physically uh, tried to burn one of the um, um, steel shelves that we had, a steel, um, uh, like a file cabinet. They went at that thing. When I saw it, it was just so slashed with machetes and an axe. The violence, you could see it right in the face of the, the filing cabinet. And they beat up our people, and they sent our men, to, and, the, and people had to flee their houses. You think this COVID thing is crazy. Imagine fleeing your houses, your fields, and you can't come back. And someone else has your fields now. Someone else is living in your house, and you're living in the jungle. Before everything was normal, your kids are going to school, and now you're, you're displaced. That's, that's what happened. Started Christmas morning and lasted for months. And, and I felt like I needed to go over there to be with them during that time. I didn't want to. I don't like persecution. And I felt like I could never respect myself. I could never look myself in the mirror. If I stayed home in comfort and safety and my brothers are going through this, how could I do that? And yet I didn't want to go. The, the honesty of my heart. And I remember I told the Lord, I said, I don't want to go. I, I don't like persecution. I don't want to go, but I, I feel I have to go. They're not even asking me to go. I just feel like I need to go. I said, Jesus, what could you tell me about persecution that would help me not to be afraid of it? Because I was afraid of it. 
And I wasn't expecting this answer, and I wasn't expecting him to speak right away. I ask him a lot of questions. Sometimes I don't hear anything right away. But this time, it was instant, just bang. I just knew it was his voice. I knew it was Jesus speaking to me. And he said, can you find a place in the Bible or any time in church history? He knows I love church history. Where persecution was a disadvantage for those who went through it. And I thought about it. I thought, boy, when persecution hit in the book of Acts, the early chapters, the church grew. The church grew numerically. It grew spiritually. It, it, it was like heat that welded them together. The church actually got better because of persecution, got leaner and cleaner. And all through church history, and I, as I looked at it, I could very quickly just kind of scan. I couldn't think of a time other than the... The, the, the trouble that it brings to our flesh, I couldn't think of any spiritual disadvantage in being persecuted. And that helped me. It freed me up. I realized, okay, that I'm afraid of physically something happening to me. I, I love my own life. But what if I could set that aside and go there and be with my brothers? And when I got there, uh, I became envious. Uh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. A bunch of us were sharing a room and and uh, <clears throat> I woke up in the middle of the night, and I looked over, and they're, they're awake. But 3 in the morning, they're, they're praying. They're sitting on their beds praying, and they're clothed with the glory of God. I could see this beautiful peace, this beautiful light, this intimacy that they're experiencing with Jesus. And I, I was instantly envious. So Jesus, this, this isn't red. This isn't Penn Clark's theory. Jesus said, spiritually advantageous it's spiritually advantageous for those who suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. Not, not because you wore the wrong bumper sticker, not because you acted out in some crazy way, but for righteousness' sake. He said there's a blessedness. There's a spiritual advantage for those who do that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not going to heaven. It's, a it's that, but it's a little bit of heaven here and now. And when I looked at my brothers, they were experiencing the glorious streams coming from heaven afar. They were experiencing heaven on earth. How many would like a little heaven on earth? They were having the peace of heaven, the joy of heaven, the, the wonder of heaven, the love of heaven. They're having intimacy of heaven here and now. Isn't that what it says? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. doesn't mean that they get to go to heaven. So heaven comes here. Heaven comes in the middle of your trial. Heaven comes, and, and I've, I've met so many people who's, who've been beat up and for sharing their faith, or they've been ridiculed, or rejected, or despised. And they say, but you know, I wouldn't trade what's passing between his soul and my soul. I wouldn't trade that for anything. It's, it's spiritually advantageous to suffer persecution. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think in these days, in this climate, and that, that something has ratcheted up, that persecution is kicking in at a greater level than ever before, that you can't have a conviction, you can't have an opinion without someone jumping all over it, countering it, putting it down, mocking it? It's only going to increase. 
If you keep your finger right where you are and you go to Luke chapter 6, Luke amplifies this. Luke develops this a little bit more. This is the same sermon given by Luke's, Luke's hand. Listen to this. He says, Blessed are you when men hate you. That means they, they may have loved you, now they've withdrawn their love. Verse 22. Blessed are, are you when men hate you, when they exclude you. They no longer have anything to do with you. They exclude you. They revile you. Revile is a reproach, and, and it means to mock, to make fun of, to misrepresent, to defame where your reputation is ruined. He said, blessed are you when your reputation's ruined. Blessed are you when, when they make fun of you. All of these things happen to Jesus, and they happen to Jesus specifically on the cross. Even the thieves on both sides of him who are crucified started off railing against him, mocking him, reviling him. Not just the religious people on the ground coming up and, and uh, jutting out their lip and saying all kinds of things about him. Even the two thieves who were being crucified with him, the Bible says that they, they reviled him. People saying all kinds of things about him. He says, blessed are they when they, they cast your name out as evil. These are people who are doing evil, but they turn it around to make it look like you're the evil right. You're the evil one. You're the one that's got it wrong. Is this happening in our day? Absolutely. Has it increased? Yes. It's increased in the last three months. Is it going to increase? Yes. Is it going to settle back down to normal? No. Not if you have a conviction. Not if you have a standard. Not if you're, not if you're living righteous, because that righteousness creates resentment. That righteousness and having an opinion and having a stand and, and having a, a conviction about something, that's going to put you at odds with people at work. It's going to put you at odds with people, your neighbor, your community. Anything you post on Facebook, you're, you have to weigh it because someone's going to jump all over that. You can't just say what you want to say. The big argument these days is about free speech. Well, we've lost that. You can't say what you want to say. You can't just say whatever you want to say. Not without a reaction. Not without what he's talking about here. It's not even you out there pushing people's buttons. It's just you going through life having, having a conviction, having an opinion. It's going to draw fire. But here's what I want you to know. There's a spiritual advantage in it. If you don't resent it, if you don't, if you don't become bitter, if you don't go into a serious meltdown and a serious pout, and you withdraw from them and you revile them back, you call them names and you get in this whole thing back and forth. If you go that way, you get nothing. You get nothing. Nothing now and nothing forever. If you can turn this and you turn to Jesus, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 again. Let's go back. What's, let's say you don't play that way. You don't, you don't mudsling something back at them. You don't hurt them back. You don't look for some kind of uh, a way to get even. 
Here's what happens. You have this opportunity. You have an opportunity to let that persecution cause you to be poor in spirit, where you become needy. And you say, Jesus, it hurts, and, and, I, and I, I, I'm struggling. He said, that's good. There's a spiritual advantage in your struggle. Then you say, Lord, I, I'm mourning. I, I, don't, I, I feel sad. I'm, I'm grieved. I, and he says, that's good. There's a spiritual advantage for those who grieve. Then you can say, it just makes me want justice. It makes me want righteousness. He says, that's good. There's a spiritual advantage. You can actually move up this thing where you start moving to righteousness and you start moving to mercy, places we don't even live in mercy. We, we sometimes camp there. We sometimes get there on the odd weekend. But he's saying that this thing can actually move you into a place of mercy where you look at the people who are doing this through different eyes. Plus, it can purify your heart. There's something about the pain of persecution that makes you lean and clean, like nothing else. It says in Hebrews that those who suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. You don't even want, when you're in pain, you don't want to sin. It has a retardant quality about it. It's possible that persecution can take you up into promises that you'd otherwise never inherit. If you respond the right way, if you just resent it and you get into a pout and you quit the whole thing, you get nothing. Listen now, persecution is coming to me and you at a rate that you have never have seen before. It's coming. It, and that's not a threat. I think it's a reality. I just think it's, a, I think it's the climate we're in. I think it's the condition of our country. I think those who are, are evil are going to say that we're the ones who are evil because of our beliefs. Just watch what happens when the vaccine comes out and you don't take it. Watch and see what happens. Watch, watch what happens when, when the economy uh, doesn't really recover and they blame, or the election comes and they blame you and they blame us. It's going to happen, folks. I think this is, a, I think this is a, a powerful message to help condition us. I think it's the same thing even with our kids. You know, somehow they get, they get called, or they get taunted, they get, they get uh, treated roughly, and we can pacify them to the point where we say they're just bad people and, and, and let's separate ourselves from them, let's not have anything more to do with them. And you can become so, such a pacifier for them that they never, they never learn how to stand. They never know how to draw from Jesus what they need in the conflict. I think we're, doing our, I think we're our, setting our kids up for failure. There's a way, there's a way to turn this around. There's a way to turn this around. I think, I think Matthew 5 and what Jesus continues to go into, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is an amplification of these first few verses. This little poem, this little poem that he's put together, I think the rest of it, 5, 6, and 7, just develops and, and creates pictures for this and, and, and gives us real-life examples for it, develops it a little bit more. I noticed that my, my middle son, Josh, wasn't talking. Came home from school, and, and I could tell that he was hurting. I could tell something happened to him. You, can, you, know, you know your kids. He wasn't responding the way he normally would, very chipper. He lost that. 
So I, I drew him to myself. I talked him in and said, tell me what's, what's happened. And he burst into tears. And he said, there's a, there's a kid on the bus who hates me. There's a kid on the bus who gets behind me, and all he does is curse and swear in my ear. And he won't stop. Dad, I can't take it anymore. I, I, I want to be homeschooled. I, I never want to go to school anymore. And this is a kid that loves school. I don't want to go to school anymore. I can't get on that bus again. So I, I cuddled him and loved him. He was just a little kid. And I'm trying to think, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? And all I've got to go by, the grid of my heart is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I got, God's just taken that and worked it in me over and over and over again. I said, well, maybe, maybe that boy, maybe he doesn't have a dad who loves you the way I love you. And maybe he's hurting. We don't know what's going on in his home. Maybe he's really hurting and he's doing this. And we talked for a little bit. We prayed for a little bit. I went to Matthew chapter 5, the very thing that Jesus develops here. I said, let's pray for this boy. Let's decide now we're going to pray for him. We're going to keep praying for him. And I said, is there, is there a way? Because Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. And I, and I said, let's bless them. Jesus said to do that. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense with how you feel. But Jesus said to do it because that's how he did it. I said, is there something we can do for him? Is there something we can give to him? Jesus said, give to those who, who uh, despise you and, and treat you poorly. Is there a way to give to him? And I thought, is there a way to give to him? And I, we talked about it. And he said, Dad, he just hates me. And he won't listen. I tell him to stop. And he won't stop. And I said, I'll tell you what. Next time you get on the bus and he does that, turn around and look him in the eye and say, why are you doing this to me? What, I, what have I done to you? I said, and, and this whole idea of turning the other cheek, you know, and trying to get that into a kid's life on a school bus, that, that's not easy. But I didn't want to just take my kid off the bus and that he not grow in, in the knowledge of Jesus, he not apply what Jesus said and do what Jesus did to become what Jesus became. I didn't want to rob him of this. This is a, this is a golden opportunity. And he got on the bus. He marched out there, and he got out on the bus and went back to school. Short while later, it was his birthday. And he had a whole bunch of kids from school at our house eating cake and the presents and all the streamers and balloons and all this stuff. And Heather called me over. She said, do you, do you know who this boy is here? And I said, no, a big kid, never seen him. She said, that's the kid from the bus. That's the kid that was cursing him my son's ear. So I talked to my son. I said, how'd that, how'd that happen? He said, well, it's kind of like what you said. He said, I prayed for him, and I, I, I started to try to love him in my heart, and I, I was praying for him. And he said, I got on the bus, and he started in on the same old thing. And I, I stood up and I turned around and I said, why are you doing what you're doing to me? What have I ever done to you? And the kid, kid says, 
he, he, he spilled his heart out right there. He says, you have a nice house. Your parents love you. And he, he just came, his, his dad just abused him so badly. His dad was destroying his life. Christian family. And he so hated what my son represented that he was speaking that venom in, in, into his ear. I said, what'd you do? And he said, well, after I said that and I listened to him, I said, well, I've got a birthday party coming up. Why don't you come to my party? never had a problem ever again from that kid on the bus. Everything changed by doing what Jesus said to do. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how old you are in the Lord. It has to be doable. Now, listen, this is my point. You're going to have to practice this. You're going to have to practice this. You're going to have to put this to work. Unless, unless, now let's just keep reading here. There's just two more points and we'll stop. He said, blessed are you who, uh, when they revile and persecute you, verse 11, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be seated glad. That's counterintuitive. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now watch this, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if a salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but is thrown out and trampled under foot of men. Uh, after salt has lost its saltiness, you can't just put it anywhere. If you put it out in the backyard, it'll kill stuff. It, it, things won't grow there. So what they would do is they'd take salt that has expired its usefulness, and they'd put it on the pathway because they didn't want stuff growing up on the pathway. They'd put it there because you couldn't just put it anywhere. You got, this stuff is toxic. You can't just put it anywhere. So he, Jesus is saying that an alternative to persecution, an alternative is for you to lose your saltiness. He goes on talking about you're the light of the world, where, where after a while you just say, I'm not going to run the risk. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to blend in. I'm not going to draw any flack. I'm not going to draw any persecution. I'm just going to become tasteless, saltless, lightless. I'm just going to blend in. That's an alternative. Good luck with that. There are lots of people who do. And, they, and Jesus warns against it. This is a reaction to what he's been saying about persecution, that you just blend in. There's a young kid who grew up in a Christian home and, and uh, got called up into the army, and he had to join the Marines. And he didn't think he'd survive boot camp as a Christian. He, he knew it was going to be tough. He called his church together and said, would you pray for me? I, I'm going to boot camp. I don't know if I can survive this. I know they're going to haze me. I know they're going to be mean to me because of my Christian faith. And, and he asked them if they would pray for him while he was in boot camp. And they agreed that they would. They prayed that night, and then they agreed that they would pray with him. Sometime later, long after boot camp, he comes back home. And the pastor said, now, how how'd you make out? How did you survive being in the army as a Christian. And he says, I just blended in and I never suspected a thing. Just do what they do. Hopefully no one will draw. Hopefully my behavior won't draw any attention. There's no salt. There's no flavor. There's no light. There's no life. There's no liberty. That's not a response to what's coming. 
You can, you can become tasteless, saltless, no reaction. It's possible. Now, verse 17, he says, Do not think I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. I think he's still talking about the same subject. In other words, you can take away the offensive thing, and maybe now you won't be persecuted. Take away the laws that talk about, uh, talk about the issues of our day, that talk about the, the sins of our day. Call them something else. We just take away the offensive part. Take away the law. If we could just get rid of that, they won't persecute me. Jesus said, that's not going to happen. I didn't come to take it away. I've come to fulfill it. We can try to avoid persecution by becoming mushy, becoming t uh, so, so discreet that we don't have anything to say. We don't, our lives don't make a difference. Or we can say, let's not, let's not uh, subscribe to this because this is what's offensive. This is what's getting me in trouble. Let's get rid of this because this is what's drawing all the flack our way. And then you have nothing. You have no moorings. You have no corner posts. You have no foundation. You have nothing to go back to. I think what's going to happen, and you'll see this in our study this Thursday. We're going to teach more about this on Thursday in the study of the book of Acts. They actually, they actually stood up for what they believed in, spoke out for what they believed in, drew flack for what they believed in, but went out with such joy, and they, they came into such freedom, and, the, and people started flocking to them. The church grew. And even when they had to leave town, they had to flee, they had to go to other places. Everywhere they went, salt and light took, took effect. Salt and life and the word of God changed cities. I think we have, I think we have several options, and you're going to have to decide what option you're going to explore. This sermon isn't something I normally teach. It's not something I've normally have, I've never taught it before. But I think the season that we're in, listen now, the season we're in is different. Something's changed. And it won't matter if you're in Canada, as peaceable as Canadians are, as nice as Canadians are, you can't hardly lift your head and say anything or have an opinion about anything, uh, anything that's righteous without getting a sword, someone wanting to lop it off. There's people in Italy who, who are hemmed in by, by incredible uh, legalistic people and then incredible liberal people and then the Muslim people who every time that Christians say something that they want them, they want them to be punished for it. They're just in this vice, an amazing vice, tremendous pressure. Everywhere I go and everywhere I know, Christians are struggling with this very thing. What about the Christians in Hong Kong? Uh, what are they going through? As soon as they reveal who they are, that they're Christians, they're in trouble. It's happening. It's happening. I don't mean to be a doomsdayer. I don't feel that in my heart. In fact, here's what I feel. Let me just, let me just go one more minute out in this. This is what I feel. I think our greatest days as Christians are here. I think they're here and they're coming. I think our greatest... Opportunity as a church, our greatest opportunity as, as, as believers is now. 
Now's the time to speak up. Now's the time to stand for righteousness. Now's the time to say what's right and do what's right. I think our love level can go up. I think, I think our, our purity can go up. How many, how many knows we, we need a little more purity in our midst and our hearts? Persecution will do that. We get to taste the mercy of God on the way through as it flows through us. We get to experience some promises we'd otherwise never experience. He said, well, if that's the way this church is, I'll, I'll find another church. Well, go for that. Go for that. If you want to get into a church where there's no light, there's no salt, there's no opinion, there's no, no stand, there's churches, there's plenty of them. But there's no flavor either. There's no light. You have to find this somewhere in yourself. You're going to have to decide what kind of Christian you're going to be. And it shouldn't be because you're wearing this massive bumper sticker on your briefcase. And it's not because you're wearing Jesus junk telling everybody that you're a Christian. Let them see your light. Let them see, let them see your light in your life and how you respond. We don't want to tr draw unnecessary attraction because of our idiosyncrasies, our weirdness. Has to be because of righteousness. Has to be for righteousness' sake. There are people who do things that are not right, and then they get clobbered over the head, and then they come crying, saying, "I was persecuted." I, I've had them show me photographs of bandages around their heads. Well, people who are really persecuted don't take selfies of themselves, showing their bandages off. Real people who are real persecuted people—they don't do that. We've crossed the line, folks. It's a different day in America. And there are people who want you to confess all kinds of things and say all kinds of things and be on their side and represent their party and represent their cause. And you're going to have to decide who you are, you know, what you're about, and take a stand and teach your kids to be able to stand and be able to stand alone. But there's a spiritual advantage that Jesus promised. There's a spiritual advantage for those who do. Amen? Let's stand together. It's only 11.30. We've got some time. How many of you feel like you've been... You've had some fragments, maybe some shrapnel, some, something's been lobbed your way. How many feel like you've been persecuted a little bit in some way? At least you've been mocked, ridiculed for your faith. Has that happened? How many feel like you're in a war? Yeah, most people. Probably, if you get it in a little group of four, to pray and say, let me, let me pray for you in this war, you'll find out that most of the people in your circle are going through stuff where they're hurting. Why don't you pray by the Holy Spirit and believe God that there'd be some kind of encouragement flowing through you? Let's, let's take some time today. We've got about a half hour or so. Let's take some time. It won't take all that long. Let's take some time and, and break up in groups to pray together. Pray for one another and whatever you're going through and just whatever it is on the job or maybe you've 
you've had the COVID police called on you or someone's gotten on your case for something that you, you didn't do quite right, let's just, let's just take some time to pray for each other. It'd be better if you could mix up with some people you don't know as well. If you're new here and you don't even know what I'm talking about, just stand right where you are. We'll come to you. Those who are wellspringers, you know what to do. I'd like you to show some leadership. Let's take some time and get at least groups of fours or five. Smaller the better. And just say, how can I stand with you in prayer with what you're going through? Go ahead. Can you mix it up? Groups of four or five? Let's do that. <laughs> 